This is an ABC podcast. Hello, welcome to The Minefield. We try to negotiate the ethical and moral dilemmas of modern life show. Waleed Ali is my name. Scott Stevens is my co-host. Hey, Scott. Hey, Waleed. How you doing? I'm very well. Or do we negotiate the ethical and moral dilemmas? That's a really life? good question. I thought about this because <laughs> I, it's on the screen and I read it out every time. I and I do go, you know what you mean? No, I don't even. It, it's, got to, <laughs> it's got to the point. How long is this? Eight years? The eighth year. It, after eight years, are you taking anything that you say in like that? It's just It just becomes a... It's not even a catchy catchphrase. No, it's really not. Why am I, I saying it's got? Can you, you, I wrote something. I, I wrote something when I first kind of framed the show. I wrote something completely different, and this is what we, this is what we settled upon. Do you know what you wrote? Look, it was something about the contradictions and unacknowledged complicities of everyday life, which I loved. See that it's probably more accurate, but even less catchy. Yeah, probably. Do you know what annoys me? Annoys us. Sorry, that was absolutely the wrong word to use. Do you know the thing about that phrasing that you just offered? Yeah. That makes me wince is Ooh. unacknowledged complicities. Yeah. And I don't know why that is. I think it might be that the notion of complicity has now in so much political discourse been so expanded. Mm-hmm. That I just wonder if drawing on it obscures more than it enlightens. Yeah, you see, this is where I'm not. Ah, my dear friend, this this takes us back to I think the fundamental, the perhaps even insoluble disagreement between us. Because what I assume is that you assume mm. that complicity involves with it or relies upon some notion of agency and therefore some concept of intention. No, Whereas, uh, so what I'm saying is it no longer is defined that way. Yeah. And so once you begin to define it in a way that makes agency more or less irrelevant and makes yeah. complicity more or less inescapable such that you become complicit by mere existence. Yes. And then, then I think it becomes a pointless... Almost, almost morally paralyzed by that fact. Yeah. No, I think it just yeah. becomes a pointless touchstone. Yep, and then all you can do is sit there and be guilty, and the greatest moral act you can do is to simply acknowledge your guilt. I, 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 and so maybe I don't wince at the term itself, but I think I, maybe I wince at what it's become. Yeah, see, I, I, to my mind, there, there is a kind of unavoidability, there's an undeniability that lurks behind the notion of what's sometimes called, for instance, structural injustice or structural racism or structural misogyny. Mm. There is, there is a fundamental insight that's behind that, that's driving it, that I think is inescapable and that deserves really serious reflection, meditation, scrutiny. When, when that, however, is taken to mean that there is something about one's very existence that renders one in a meaningful way culpable or that renders one an agent in the immiseration of another human being, uh, such that the only moral act that you can then do to absolve yourself is to make confession, 
to yeah. offer forms of penance, to do groveling expressions of guiltworthiness. I, I think you're right. There's something about that that's both self-destructive, that's nihilistic finally, that's probably unjust if we take the wider meaning, the deeper meaning of, of justice, which we may well come to a little bit later. But I, uh, I think what we shouldn't miss, I mean, I, I always worry when expressions of intention, this is not that show, by the way, but hey, we're here. I always worry when expressions of intention are used to give oneself an alibi for when one has committed something that really has, or when one has done something or participated or been involved in something that really has occasioned harm on another person. Oh, I didn't mean that. Or that wasn't my intention. Or those words came out wrong. What I meant to say was, I mean, I don't think those things are as vicious as when someone sets out intentionally or sadistically to hurt or to injure, to wound somebody else. But I don't think claiming intention necessarily wholly absolves somebody. Sometimes remorse, acknowledgement, recognition, my God, is that how you heard me? Is that what my words did to you? Is that the injury that I inflicted? Sometimes that's the better response. That's the response that has a degree of credibility to it, apart from simply kind of claiming a degree of purity. And so I think touching on ideas of complicity, that sometimes we are caught up in things that maybe we didn't wholly intend, but nonetheless, because of our inattentiveness or our unthinkingness or our inarticulacy uh, or our unacknowledged prejudice, sometimes we find ourselves caught up in things that do immense damage to other people or that do intense damage to our common home. And what we need to do is to claim something far deeper, far greater, far uh, further reaching than merely, that's not what I intended. That's not what I meant to do. So I think I I share all of your concerns, Waleed. Well, almost all of them, 99% of them. But I think there's something in complicity, the acknowledgement, the wariness that we become complicit in things uh, that's worth holding on to, that's worth claiming. All right. Good meeting about the slogan. Should we do the show? (laughs) Let's do the show. All right. So we had this moment during last week's episode, which I loved, by the way. I, I loved. I'm, I'm thinking that one of the things we need to return to several times this year is the nature, the status, the pitfalls, the moral quality of some of our emotions, our emotional responses to things, especially those that have, like I said last week, that have that kind of moral tinge to it, that sort of bear within them a kind of moral claim. I think it's something we need to return to because I'm, I notice there's so many moral philosophers today that are trying to rehabilitate certain emotions to give them a, a moral quality that I think they simply do not deserve. And we're kind of, we're simply grasping the emotions for their power, for their perhaps effectiveness or maybe not, uh, and missing the dangers that lurk beneath them. So anyway. Do you, do you care uh, to name the emotions? Uh, to my mind, there, there are two that are top of the list. Okay. Well, actually three. Uh, one of them is maybe a subset of the first. For me, top of the list is contempt. There's an entire industry among some moral philosophers trying to rehabilitate contempt as not just a moral emotion, uh, but also an emotion that is necessary for any self-respecting democratic community. Yeah. I could not disagree more. The other for me is anger. Yeah. Again, there's an entire industry in plumbing the effectiveness of anger for achieving social justice or cultural change. And again, I just, I, I can't get there. Do you know um, what I found interesting about that was, uh, and I know you're going somewhere else, 
Well, you kind of not actually, because what we're really no, talking not. about today yeah. is <laughs> the way in which so much of our language is laden with morally loaded terms, yeah, and whether or not that's justifiable of any benefit, etc. So we we are in that in that region. But as you're talking about anger, I thought it was interesting because Bell Hooks, the feminist scholar, mm, died. Mm, one of my favourites. Yeah, died how long ago? Three, four weeks. I'm not sure. And it was just interesting seeing the write-ups, the reflections on bell hooks. And anger was at the centre of at least some of them. That she was the one who licensed and taught women to be angry, to embrace their anger. And so there you are, having just said that she's one of your favourites, but also that you are concerned about anger as sort of its own legitimation in a way. Um, Waleed, can I just say, without turning the show into this topic? Yeah. I read that too. Yep. I found that the most astonishing post hoc appropriation of her intellectual work and labor and legacy to suit our times. That's I've interesting. Yeah. seen since the death of Toni Morrison. I found that I found that positively offensive because if there's one thing that has characterized the very best, uh, and sorry, I'm making a value judgment there. These are the people who have touched me deeply, who have meant the most to me. When you read Toni Morrison, when you read Bell Hooks, when you read James Baldwin, when you read Martin Luther King Jr., in every instance, there was a profound wariness to give oneself over to the feeling and to the display, to the weaponization of the self-same emotions that had been so long weaponized against them. I mean, one of the things that James Baldwin said famously is that if we give ourselves over to feeling contempt towards our enemies, what we are doing is we are licensing contempt as a usable weapon, as a currency in this particular affair, not realizing, it seems, that what contempt does is it breaks down the conditions of communication. You cannot imagine a future with someone for whom you hold nothing but contempt. The same with bell hooks and anger. She was always wary. I mean, she was suspicious of gentility. She was very, very skeptical of passivity. But to say that she was the great theorist of anger, I, I just, I, I find that intellectually offensive. I'll put it that way. Mm. Wow, this is a fun conversation. (laughs) So look, there was a moment last week, Waleed, when we were talking about emotions, and I love that you asked it. Um, I described the public outpouring of emotion that's been directed against Boris Johnson as being either or akin to betrayal. And reaching for that kind of word, because betrayal usually suggests a degree of intimacy Uh, bringing someone into your confidence, a reliance upon somebody else that's then willfully or gleefully or maliciously shattered uh, or, or shattered with no care, with no concern for the emotional consequences that the person being betrayed will feel. And you, you asked, I think exactly right, but we use words like betrayal all the time when it comes to politicians. And I think I responded something like we use it far too much. Yep. Uh, It's a word that as soon as you use it too often, It loses its weight, it loses its force, it loses its power. It seems to me, partly because we are given to hyperbole, partly because of the extent to which our modes of communication tend to push us towards extremes, partly because increasingly we willfully inhabit extremes as a way of trying to burnish our moral credentials, 
um, we give ourselves over to extreme language, language that needs to be used very selectively, very carefully with all the meaning, with all the weight that that language can bear. And when we use that language promiscuously, we lose something essential about the language itself. It's almost like we burn it out. Uh, we use up its usefulness. Uh, it simply becomes part of the texture, part of the atmosphere. And I think more than that, the more that we use language that is meant to be used in, let's say, extreme circumstances, mm. or we use language that has a delicacy, has a preciousness about it, and so ought to be used very, very carefully. Um, the other thing, of course, that that does is it makes us inattentive to those genuinely extreme moments when they arrive. I remember something that I heard David Runciman, the historian, political theorist at Cambridge University, say some years back. He, he said, well, when we use the term fascist to yeah. describe politicians with vaguely authoritarian tendencies, what the hell are we going to call them when the real fascists show up? Yeah. And I think when we use heavily morally laden language, when we use terms like shame and disgrace and as a matter of justice and the only morally defensible path forward is or the greatest moral challenge of this generation, when we use well, language that, yes, when we use moral language that is that heavily freighted, then I think we're ruining the conditions of our common life because we're doing ourselves out of the very thing that we need to tend to those conditions. I think we mistake what it is to be moral in the first place, what the category or what the adjective moral refers to. What, what are we doing when we try to claim something as being moral? And what I think we're doing instead is we're tipping over into overt moralism and into forms of moralistic judgment that can only have the effect of burning out moral language, which I find incredibly precious, which I find not just tender and almost invariably constructive and intimate in the way that it ought to bear people into a common space, into something like a shared understanding or, or a better version of themselves. Uh, but we're also pushing people, I think, to extremes because when you raise the moral stakes on something, and someone else doesn't share that category of moral evaluation, then either you've frozen them out of the conversation, um, they simply don't have any purchase, they don't have any recourse to the same moral language. It's kind of like satire. When you use high-blown moral language or a form of high moral judgment on a particular situation, the person who disagrees just has to sit there and take it or opt out of the conversation altogether or else be condemned for not buying into that same language. Um, so well, yeah, although in the case of moral language, they have the option of responding with an equally heightened. Yes, that's exactly right. Which is what that's we exactly see, right. right, and then that then hence polarization. Yeah. Yes, which means that there's, and, and and this for me is the saddest thing of all, and I promise I'll shut up after this. That what our current promiscuous use of moral language has done, is it's had the effect of ending conversations. It's had the effect of planting flags in the ground around which the tribes of the already convinced can rally and array their weapons and their forces against those who have no place, who have no purchase, who have no hold on those same, on those same moral terms. And I think what we're missing in the process then is the extent to which what we are doing when we evoke the moral 
is we are necessarily tending to something that ought to be a common term of evaluation. We are tending to something that ought to be common between us or charting out a path by which those who maybe have gone astray can find their way back to common human community. The very thing that ought to bear up something or tend something that's common, we've weaponized it and turned it into a mechanism of inarticulacy, of non-conversationalism, and ultimately of polarization. So it seems to me that we are currently suffering from the misuse, from the abuse, from the overuse of moral language in far too much public life. Right, but it has a very clear rhetorical aim, right, which is to pin your conclusion to an unarguable moral claim. So if I say this is justice, then I'm forcing you to say, well, I'm not for justice, right, Mm. which you will not say. Now, you're right that the end result is that someone will just make a similarly heightened moral claim and then the possibilities of conversation break down. So that's all true. But I want to say something. I was going to say you would disagree with this, but actually I think you might agree once I fully flesh it out. I don't think you object to moral language in public life and even in the course of argument, having recourse to moral language. It sounds like what you really object to is is exaggeration and misappropriation of moral concepts. So if we had a public conversation that was frequently moral but was calling to certain moral concepts, the kind, incidentally, that we just never call to now. So, I don't know, courage, for example, or patience Mm -hmm. or Mm -hmm. humility, these sort of things that I would argue is actually the real stuff of morality. Yeah. But is almost... I was going to say unfashionable. I need a stronger <clears throat> word than that, but you know what I mean. It's. I think the word you're looking for is held in disdain. Yeah, that's probably or, right. Yeah, or ignored altogether. As as by the way, Aristotle did when it comes to humility. He certainly, while he held courage as one of the virtues, he certainly did not hold humility as being among the virtues. Right. Okay. Which does that go back to Agnes Callard's observation on our? Yep. I can't remember if it was on air or off air, but she said her reading of Aristotle was basically that he decided he'd figured it all out. <laughs> and that was that. That's your Aristotle. That's your primer. I wonder if we had a public language that was imbued with those moral terms so much more. I don't think you would have a problem with that, unless they were being sort of promiscuously used. But I, hmm. I think if, if you were coming up with someone who was making a public argument from the position of patience. Mm-hmm. I think you would have no problem. I think Mm. where you seem to have a problem, and I'm with you on this to a large extent, is where it's appropriated for fire and brimstone purposes that are not actually about exploring the moral terrain or identifying any of the moral nuances that might be at play here or considering the moral claims of someone with an opposing argument, but they're actually a way of avoiding any serious moral contemplation with reference to a moral declaration. Mm-hmm. Would that be a fair thing to say? Um, mostly, mostly. Certainly the last point, you're absolutely right. I mean, one of the things that I suppose offends me most, uh, just offends my sensibilities, I'll, I'll just put it that way, in the way that we tend to use moral language, is that moral language operates, acts, as a form of moralism or as a form of moral judgment. Uh, one brings down the gavel, 
on a particular person from which or from whom nothing more really needs to be said. Uh, the debate is settled. All there is is acquiescence or defiance and then exile. So I think there's, there's something about that that just basically misunderstands the process that needs to be gone through whereby we can reach something like intelligent, justifiable moral judgment at the end of it. And just how laborious a process it is to reach the point where, I mean, if, if we think about moral judgment as a way of describing a world that is already seen in a moral light, um, in other words, a world of value and things that need to be preserved, things that are vital for our common life, um, things that aren't just utility, for instance, or yeah. resource, but things that have value. If, if we see the world in a particular light that is described as moral, and then moral judgment becomes a way of describing or holding up a particular value in a world like that. In other words, if moral judgment then becomes a kind of a form of speech or a way of saying, this is how I see the world, um, and then inviting others to see that world similarly, I think there's something about that that's, that, that's important, that's defensible, that's precious. But as soon as I describe it that way, you can see the process by which one needs to go through in order to reach that point, to describe the world in such a way. Yeah. Can you imagine what you need to know about the life of another human being to exact moral judgment upon them, to say there is nothing more that needs to be said, there is nothing more that needs to be heard? So to my mind, that's one of the issues, the way that we enact forms of, say, categorical judgment. Uh, on people. There is a basic betrayal there. Um, just going back to your earlier point, though, and I'll do this very briefly because I'm really eager to get to our guest. When you described moral terms that don't include the word moral, because you realize, of course, what we often do is we say a word that we would ordinarily say and then whack moral on the front of it as a way of giving it a degree of weight or raising the stakes. But using words instead like courageous or patient or attentive, or gentle, or tender, or sacrificial. You know, one of the philosophers, as you know, Willie, that's just meant an immeasurably large amount to me is Iris Murdoch, who said that we ought to, in our descriptions of other people, we ought to abandon terms like good or evil altogether because those terms are weighted with whatever it is we want them to mean. They don't tell us anything about what it means for that person to be that person. We need to reach as deep as we can possibly go in the bag of adjectives that we have at our disposal. We need to read as much as we possibly can to find the most accurate descriptions. And we need to observe those people as carefully as we can to constantly revise what are the adjectives I'm going to use to capture the preciousness, to capture the dignity, the integrity uh, of that person in a matter that's both just and loving. And I think that when you use words that are everyday words like just or humble or attentive or tender or precious, we're not not using moral terms there. We're using incredibly moral terms because what we're describing is what is most beautiful and what is most worth preserving in our common life. But again, that's not, those aren't the words that we use. The reason I used the Kevin Rudd analogy before with the greatest moral challenge of our time is that by putting moral, and we've discussed this last year, so I don't want to go on with it, but by putting moral on the front of it, there was a kind of unequivocalness. There was a and it will brook no negotiation quality that was given then to the issue of climate change. Whereas if we see the moral as one of the ways that we preserve, along with other people, what is of most value to us, another way we do that is by politics. 
And in politics, there are forms of tragedy, like immorality, but particularly in politics, there are forms of tragedy that we have to indulge in, we have to engage in, in the name of compromise, that may well not allow what it is that we are aiming for to be realized in the way that we hoped for it. And so I think when you whack moral on the front of something, where there are so many other considerations, there's so much more time that needs to take place, I think what that then does is it necessarily distorts uh, what it is we mean by moral and the extent to which moral the word moral ought to invite us towards something rather than simply be the end of the conversation. Can I just say one last thing, Willie? And then I really will oh, shut geez, up. You're really testing Shanaid now. Yes. I, I, I am, but I, I need to say it now because we won't get to it later. Okay. The other thing that I think is so corrupting about the way that we use moral language is that moral language acts as a kind of promotion of oneself. Yeah as a form of, again, burnishing one's moral credentials. Uh, to this extent, uh, in the last show that we did last year on why kind of villains make the best television centerpieces, I, I made the analogy with uh, Shakespeare's Richard III. I mean, he is such a deep and fascinating character because he is inextinguishably narcissistic. He draws all spectators into his orbit so that they see everything as revolving effectively around him. That's not what moral language is meant to do. I mean, if you use moral language to burnish your own credentials, to enhance your profile, that's not moral. That's narcissism. It's meant to do the opposite. That's, yes, that's grandstanding. Whereas what moral language ought to do, and here's where I think Elizabeth Anscombe is exactly right, Iris Murdoch is right, Stanley Cavell is right, moral language allows us to see other people in the light of justice and love. Moral language allows us to see others through the eyes of the person who's using that language. There, is, there ought to be something almost saintly to that degree about the language that's used by people who are morally serious. By casting other people in, quote-unquote, moral light, you are enabling them to be seen as proper or worthy objects of love. It seems to me that the way that we use moral language is exactly the opposite. It's a form of disdain. It's a way of heaping contempt on others. It's a way of ensuring that others can't be heard, won't be heard, or are regarded with the utmost, you know, from a kind of position of of moral height. So for all these reasons, I think we are corrupted (laughs) in the way that we've used this language. And I think moral language is getting us absolutely nowhere. That final moral declaration came from Scott Stevens, who's my co-host on The Minefield, which is the show you're listening to if you've just joined us on the radio. You can listen to the show on RN, as you might be doing, but you can also catch the podcast anytime on the ABC Listen app or by following The Minefield on your podcast platform of choice. Our guest has been... Uh, almost as long-suffering as our producer. Uh, Brandon Warmke <laughs> is Associate Professor of Philosophy at Bowling Green State University, and he's the co-author of what really is a gorgeous book. Uh, it's, it's not a morally significant book. It's a book of tremendous tenderness and grace and preciousness. Those are the best adjectives I can find, Brandon. Uh, it's called Grandstanding. He wrote it with Justin Tossie. It's called Grandstanding, the Use and Abuse of Moral Talk, which makes, Brandon, you pretty much the perfect person to join us on this episode of The Market. How are you doing, Brandon? <laughs> I'm good. Thank you guys for having me. And also, I, those, those words are very kind. I, I really appreciate it. So let's 
let's begin. I mean, you've heard what Walid and I have had to say, mostly me, unfortunately. You've, you, you've registered, no doubt, our concerns, and I know that from reading your book, you share many of them. But let's just, let's just begin with that last point, what it is that moral language is supposed to do. What is the telos? What is the purpose? What is the proper end of moral language? Because it, it seems to me that when moral language is used to enhance one's profile, to burnish one's moral credentials, to be used, as Soren Kierkegaard once described it, as a kind of ornament or as a fashion piece that one wears out into public in order to draw attention to oneself. It seems to me that moral language becomes severed from its proper goal. If that's the case, the right question then is, what is the purpose of moral language? What is moral language meant to do, especially in a time like ours, when there is so little agreement about fundamental moral values, fundamental moral norms, or what it is that we're invoking when we invoke moral language in the first place? So here are some bad ways to use uh, moral talk. So, uh, you know, as you guys have so nicely put it, so, you know, one way that you could use moral talk is to seek status, to try to impress other people. You might use moral talk to hurt your enemies, to affirm or reinforce your group membership. Some people use moral talk to cover up their own mistakes, right? So they've done something. And so, you know, someone's become a, they're afraid of being found out for lying or extortion and they become using morality to condemn other people for lying or extortion. So often we use morality to cover up or avoid suspicion for our own behavior. I think a lot of people think that those are all bad uses of moral talk, that if, if this is why you're engaging in the public square, you may be misusing moral talk. So the question then is, well, what are the good proper uses of moral talk? I don't think there's just one. I mean, here are I mean, just to throw out a few. So you might think that moral discussions are important because you're trying to persuade. So moral terms persuade people. So if you're trying to persuade someone to believe something or do something or a politician to pursue some policy, you might use moral terms to try to get people to see the the import of of some some policy. You might want to just express your an opinion. So, you know, one one positive you know, I could see a positive case for moral talk. You're, you're just trying to, you're just trying to explain how you see the world. You're trying to communicate to people how the world strikes you. This is bad. This is a problem, something to be fixed. You might use moral terms to compromise. So maybe you think this thing is really bad. I, I think it's not so bad. And so we have a way of gauging kind of on a, on a scale, as it were, how how we see the world and maybe we can compromise in those ways. And we also use morality to blame and punish. I mean, I, I think I'm not anti-blame, I'm not anti-punishment. I think there are cases in which what we should do is blame or punish people, but but you might think that's one proper proper goal of public discourse. And there's the obvious ones, you know, just to identify things in the world, to try to affect change. The problem is, you know, if you, if you spend any time on Twitter or watching, you know, news networks or listening to politicians or reading think pieces, it it looks like from the outside what a lot of people are doing is using moral talk to do those things on the bad list, right? They're trying to hurt people they hate, you know, they're trying to seek status, they're trying to, uh, you know, assure their in-group that they are the good people. Instead of the other things on the good list, you know, persuade, express their views, um, compromise, and so on. There's so much well, in there that's interesting. I like your lists. I, you have a thing for lists, though, Willie, though, don't you? You like no, lists. No, I don't think that's true. No? Where did you get that from? 
Yeah, but this is an mm. off-air conversation. Okay, sorry. Um, I'm interested, though, in how you can discern from the outside which category it falls into. So, for example, the the discourse on Twitter that you identify, I'm inclined to agree with your categorization. But I imagine if you ask the people engaged in it, they would say, no, I'm doing it to persuade. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm doing it to beseech. I want to call someone into a position that is more aligned with justice. Or um, you saw this phenomenon, right? Remember when before cancel culture, people spoke about call out culture and then the response to that was, no, I'm not calling out, I'm calling in, uh, et cetera. Now, you know, I think to some extent these are semantic differences and it was a way of just responding to a fair enough criticism, but, you know, leave that to one side. I, th- I think what lurks beneath all of this, which is something that is a, uh, a site of disagreement, I think, between Scott and me, is that question of intention. And that can be a very difficult thing for people to be honest with themselves about, that they that their, their intentions in invoking this language are genuinely pure. It requires a level of self-insight that I think is is difficult to do you know, let alone how difficult it is to do when you're not that person from, from the outside and you're trying to identify which part of the list this particular form of language belongs to. So how do you go about identifying all that? Well, I, I don't. I mean, I think this is actually the, I mean, that's a really nice point, Waleed. I mean, I, it, it is difficult, if not impossible, to go around and look at what people are saying and put them in the category. You're you know, your motivations are good, your motivations, you know, you're seeking status, you're trying to hurt people, you're doing it because you love justice. It's really difficult to do, if not impossible. And so I actually don't think that the way to go about trying to diagnose or improve public discourse is by trying to identify people who are bad actors, diagnose their behavior and then correct them. Sure. I was just thinking about the way that you yeah. you described yeah. so much of the discourse on Twitter as X. And so um, so you, you've clearly yeah. done it to some extent, if you know what I mean. Well, so with a psychologist, you know, we have done some empirical work. We've done, I think, uh, six or seven studies now with over 7,000 subjects. And it, it it is true that a lot of people on use social media to seek status. And we know that because they tell us. <laughs> it's, <laughs> right. it's, ama- it's amazing that people will actually say, I mean, people will actually say, I'm doing this because I want to look good. I want to impress people. Um, I, I do think you can get people to admit, yeah, I'm dunking on my enemies. I mean, right, yep. I don't know if that's, uh, you have to really sort of like, you know, trick people into telling, um, having them tell you what they're really up to. But you're right. I mean, it's, I guess, the way that I think of it is these are all basic human desires and motivations. It would be shocking to me if we didn't see them in, in moral discourse too. It would be shocking to me. I think some philosophers have this view that like, you know, we're all selfish, we're all selfish capitalists and we're all greedy and we're all trying to get it. And then we step into the, the moral boxing ring and we're all like good hearted and we all care about justice or, or, or at least my side does, right? My side has the yeah. good, you know, the good uh, goals in mind. And I and I just think I just don't think that's that's what's going on. I think whatever impressing mates. I mean, I I think a lot of people actually get on Twitter and engage arguments about morality and politics because they're trying to impress um, romantically or sexually impress people, whether they're aware of it or not. So I I just think these are basic human motivations. It would be shocking to me if they didn't show up in moral discourse as well. Wow. See, 
Oh, this is so interesting. The voice that has stumped Scott belongs to Brendan Warpke, who's Associate <laughs> Professor of Philosophy at Bowling Green State University, I guess for this week's edition of The Minefield, uh, which is what you're listening to. Well, Ed Ali is my name. Scott Stevens is my co-host. Look, I'm not stumped. I'm fascinated by what you're saying. And uh, sorry, Brandon, you just can't help but love someone who has the degree of either brazenness or self-knowledge to say, I'm using this kind of language on Twitter because I want to seem, <laughs> I want to look like a morally superior yeah. person. I just find there's something about that just warms my heart. I mean, it's horrible, but it's also just kind of lovely. Um, here's, here's the question, though. It seems to me that most forms of public discourse especially if we go back to, you know, in the great old days when someone like John Rawls was taken seriously, that, you know, you could appeal to something like public reason. You could say, okay, you know, if I'm committed to something, then I want to give reasons that could be reasonably accepted by people who are come to it in more or less the same good faith that I do and accept things or able to evaluate things on much the same terms that I am, and those who aren't necessarily sort of jaundiced or ideological, uh, ideologically prejudiced against it. So, you know, the, there's something about the terms of public debate. If you really are interested in persuasion, you know, we've done a whole show on persuasion, so I don't want to go over that territory. But there ought to be something of a common currency that we use, that we exchange. And maybe you might want to give someone back change. Maybe you don't like that particular note. You want to give some coin instead. But there ought to be something enough in common that the terms of exchange are acceptable. The thing that I find remarkable and remarkably troubling about moral language, which is why I'm almost at the point where I think it's irretrievably corrupted, is that we, we have such fundamental disagreement on common moral values, or if we do agree that something is valuable or exists within the realm of human value, we don't necessarily agree or we have sharp disagreement about where in the list of priorities that value ought to be ranked. So, I mean, that's one issue of sort of severe, I think, disagreement. Then you've got the deeper issue. And this is the one that Elizabeth Murdoch pointed out in her famous paper, Modern Moral Philosophy, that using terms like moral and morality or obligation or ought is like using the term criminal or criminality in a world where judges and law courts have long since disappeared. These terms like moral, morality, ought, obligation, these assume a world in which there is, quote unquote, a right side of history, or there is a lawgiver or someone to whom we are ultimately answerable. There is someone who imposes and someone who enforces the notion of obligation. In other words, we're using terms that not only don't enjoy widespread agreement, but we're also using terms that sound weighty. And it's not that they're hollow. It's that they're unintelligible. They exist in, a, in this kind of context. They, they were born in a context in which they made sense. But that context of shared agreement and of a kind of understanding, if you like, of the arc of the universe or the texture, structure of reality, uh, something like the, a greater transcendental guarantee that just isn't ours anymore. So, Scott, so, are, you, are you saying that this rise in strident moral language in the political realm accompanies the disappearance or the hollowing out of any kind of moral consensus or moral commitment in broader society? Uh, yes, yes. So much right. so that it's become now a flourish. It's become nothing more than something like placing an exclamation point 
or putting a sentence in all caps. It becomes a way of trying to say something big, but not, in fact, being able to say what one means to say. Because we don't have Whereas, the resources to say something truly big. Yes. So, so if moral language can no longer rely on, if you like, a kind of vertical law in Kant's sense, or something like a transcendental guarantee that there is a lawgiver, there is someone who guarantees that there really is an obligation, so much so that if we break that obligation, then we are blameworthy, blameworthy to whom? Then if we don't have recourse then to moral language in, say, a more intimate or more imminent or more horizontal, in other words, the point of moral language is to try to cultivate common ground between us, to try to cultivate the conditions within which we can recognize one another's common humanity, if we're not using moral language in the second sense, which I don't think we are, then I guess what's the point of using it if not as a rhetorical flourish to make us seem bigger or more serious or more engaged than we are? I'll make the problem even worse, Scott. Okay, <laughs> it's, <okay. laughs> it's, it's not even that we – I mean I think you're right that many cultures around the world have lost a sense of uh, a unifying moral narrative or moral story. But I think – what makes it even more difficult to have moral conversations is when you live in a diverse society where there are widely and wildly different conceptions of values. So not even just the thing, like not even what justice refers to, but whether justice is important at all or how it ranks in the list of values that are important. So how does it fare against equality or freedom? And so when you have, you know, if you're living in a very homogenous society where people generally agree with you about lots of things, I think it's easier to have a moral conversation. But, you know, when you live in New York City, for example, and you're living around millions of people who have wildly different – there's lots of consensus and overlap. You know, don't don't push people in front of trains and so on. But like the, <laughs> it's, it's a the ranking up. of like <laughs> equality versus justice versus freedom. I mean you see this with like the COVID mandate. So you have people who – value freedom more than than security of people who are really risk averse and people who are risk tolerant. And so what you have is, you know, you get on Twitter or you have these conversations and you have people imposing their idiosyncratic morality on everyone else. So like the things that are obvious to me, like when it comes to sexual morality or just how you treat your friends or, you know, whatever it is, I look at other people and I, I see all these people different than me, not living up to my idiosyncratic morality. And it's like a field day. Right? It's like always people who are doing it wrong. The heart of the problem in diverse cultures is like, is it possible for people to mind their own business? If it's not possible for people to mind their own business, you're going to have these conversations that devolve into people arguing about their idiosyncratic moralities. I mean, my view is the only way to make a liberal democratic order with diverse perspectives, lots of experiments in living work is for people to have a sense of the importance of the ability to mind your own business. I have to let my neighbors live their lives, you know, within reason. But like, I can't go around imposing my idiosyncratic morality on, on you guys. I, I have to, you know, I have to mind my own business. Yeah, the, the problem is, and, and this is liberalism's problem all along, I think, is that so much isn't just your own business, mm. right? Mm. That That... These things do bleed into one another. Now, liberalism tries to resolve this through the harm principle, right? The only time something becomes my business, so something of yours becomes my business, is where harm is occasioned. 
And that is, I think, why you see so much of the moral language, even if it comes from people who would regard themselves as critics of liberalism, you see so much of the moral language being couched in terms of harm, right? And the concept of harm becomes stretched to breaking point. When you speak like that, when you when you make this argument, you're harming this group of people. Well, okay, if, you know, do you have to demonstrate the harm? What's the evidence of the harm? To what extent does that harm preclude the possibility of having an argument about something? All of these sorts of things. But it's couched in those terms because, in a sense, that's all that liberalism will allow. But the COVID example you give, I think, illustrates the problem, right? It, that's a matter of public policy. When you talk about, you know, what level of restriction is acceptable for a government to put on its citizenry. I'm interested that you catch that as a, as a moral question where we have different moral responses. I regarded that as a political question, really. There might be moral dimensions to it, but ultimately these becomes, become questions of administration, right? But if you want to call it a moral question, well, these are moral questions that profoundly become everyone's business. And so I think this idea of trying to draw that line between what is my business and what is not your business in a liberal context is, I mean, I, I was going to say it's really difficult. It might be illusory. I don't know how you give that line coherence. Well, this is why I say it makes Scott's problem even bigger. I mean, I, I don't know if there's a way to, to draw that line. I do know that if everyone thinks that everything is their business, that's the worst, that's the worst scenario. So there may not be an obvious way to draw the line. I think, I think the question is, could more people mind their own business more of, you know, of course there are going to be things that you, you can't mind your business about, or another way to put it is there are things that actually are your business that don't just involve like, you know, who you live with or how you arrange your house and, and so on. So. But, but isn't this uh, where my, structural analyses become like the, they destroy that entirely, right? Yeah. If, what do you mean? Well, so for example, because what a structural analysis wants to do is it wants to say that everybody's private business has moral content for everybody else. So for example, you say, I have a private commitment as part of my morality. My commitment is that I don't want to be alone in a room with a member of the opposite sex. So pick the Mike Pence example. Very quickly, a structural analysis would arise that would say, well, yes, but once you do that, you are immediately now disempowering um, usually women because a man who has power, who holds that view, starts to crowd women out of his circle and therefore deny them access to the benefits of some kind of friendly relationship, which will then lead to, you know, opportunities or, or whatever, whatever, whatever. We saw exactly those criticisms when Mike Pence's position was made public, right? And so mm -hmm. is that his business? I mean, any the, the, mini, the whole point of a structural analysis is to make everything everyone's business, right? Yeah. I, I, I think in that case, in many cases, it's a matter of conscience. So let's, let's just assume Pence is sincere, and it is a serious matter of conscience for him. What claims do other people have on him violating his conscience? And that's not a question we're going to solve here, but I, I think it's a, it's a, it's a morally weight. It's, yeah. it's a morally weighty one. I mean, I don't think you can just ignore it. So does everything become my business? I think, I mean, meant literally, like that means I can like go to, you know, my next door neighbor has nudie mags under his mattress. And I'm like, I think this is like causing decay in this, this social fiber of, of my town. Like I can't yep. go over there and like 
berate him or like turn his place upside down and steal these things. So, yeah, I mean, this is the in, in a way the fundamental question of social morality. I mean, what where do you draw the line between when you can go out and blame other people, hold them to your standards? And and there, I don't see an easy question to that I or a, an easy answer to that. I think all I'm suggesting is that I think society would probably be better off if we minded our business a little more. What's so interesting to me about the way this conversation has gone, where we've ended up, is that it, I think it demonstrates my suspicion all along, and some people may love this, some people may bemoan it, that the use of the language of morality, if we talk about social morality or political morality or, or structural morality or whatever, the use of the language of morality can't help but bring in with it the requirement of perhaps we would like to call it something like a transcendental guarantee or maybe an arc of history. I find it remarkable, for instance, that when a lot of people now speak about justice, what they really mean is justice with a capital J. Um, what they mean is something that history will deliver and that exists as history's end goal. The agent of that goal is up to the people who believe in that sort of thing. So, so the use of moral language can't help but rely on something like harm, Wally, with a capital H, or structural analyses, or history having a right side, or there being a lawgiver that's behind our obligations and oughts. The problem then is that if we don't believe in a benevolent force behind those guarantees, then the way that we get there is through something like the eradication of our enemies or revolution or demographic change that ensures yeah. the disappearance of the people we don't like. What is missed in the meantime is the fact that if there is anything that the moral ought to attend to, okay, the moral, as my dear friend Ray Gaeta puts it, the moral judges our goals, it judges our ends, but the moral, and this is me now, attends most particularly to the means, the means by which we get there. And I guess if moral language, if the way that we utilize moral terms, the way that we engage in conversation in such a way that invites people into a shared space, this is the way I see the world. Does that map onto anything that you value, that you love? Where, where are the points of connection that we can discover? What are the shared ends that we can pursue together? If, if moral language doesn't create, cultivate, attend to the common space among us and help us to see one another as worthy objects of love, in other words, if morality, if the moral isn't imminent, if it doesn't, if it's not the space between us and not just the goal that we're trying to seek, it seems to me that we come very, very close to the point where moral language either has no meaning at all or its end is, um, is uh, achieved through decidedly immoral means or even violence. What do you make, Scott, of the thought that moral language could be recaptured and have meaning, but it can only do that in what you might think of as local or like-minded communities? And when you start and when you start trying to engage moral language between these local or small communities, that's when it's really difficult to engage in meaningful conversation because you do have very different conceptions of like what's just, right? So the Amish, the Amish community in the United States, in Pennsylvania, is going to have a very different conception of moral life than 
than Hollywood. And I don't even know how, I mean, I don't even know how you get those two groups talking about things that are just not obvious, right? So no, set aside the obvious right. things. Um, so it may be that, you know, within small, coherent, like-minded, moral communities, you can get lots of overlap and you can have meaningful conversation between them. Maybe not. But look, I I don't think that overlap overlap has to be presumed in advance. I think that overlap can be discovered along the way. I, I think that's probably right, Brandon, that moral conversations are necessarily proximate conversations. I think they do rely yeah. on size, on intimacy. Um, I don't think they they require overlap in advance. Otherwise, that's just that's just a recipe for homogeneity. But I do think there are other things that we don't necessarily think of as moral that provide or supply the context within which we are able to see one another as worthy uh, conversation partners. I would say the law guaranteeing the fundamental equality of persons is the necessary conditions in which one another can be seen as this is someone whose existence in the world impresses itself upon me morally. They are owing not just my respect, but also my attentiveness. I would also say that great works of art, that certain vital pieces of culture do immeasurably much to portray, to cast one another in this kind of light where we can see them as people whose words I ought to attend to, whose lives impress themselves, impose themselves upon me. So I think there, there we have two things. Yes, moral conversation probably needs to be proximate, but then we also need those, those things, those institutions uh, that provide the context within which those kind of conversations can be had in the first place. It seems to me that perhaps paradoxically, when you have a unified meta-narrative, you actually have greater room for diversity because you have a common reference point from which you can depart, but you actually have a way of having a coherent conversation. Speaking of coherent conversation, we're done because we're out of time. (laughs) Brandon, if you just want to hang around, Scott and I just keep talking to you for another three hours or so because I think we're enjoying this (laughs) tremendously. Your contribution has been extraordinary. So thanks so much for joining us. That's uh, Brandon Wormke, Associate Professor of Philosophy at Bowling Green State University. Our guest for this week's edition of The Minefield, which is at an end, at least on air. And we'll see you next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.